Hi, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Um, nice can I just you. bring up a story? Oh, yeah, please, please or... go ahead. Bring up a Sorry, do you have a link? Okay. Do you want to put it in the chat? Oh, um, it's actually from, this is just a small part of a two-hour um, talk. There was a, this week in virology, um, episode 1015, and this isn't all that new, actually, but um, one of the, one of the antibody, one of the, uh, antivirals they're working on it's not really an it's it's a it's a um, monoclonal antibody um, and they're and these are actually antibodies that they get from llamas and the difference between the, their antibodies and ours is that they only they're you know how our antibodies are like a Y? There's a fixed part, and then there's the part that matches the anti anti antigen that, that kind of um, neutralizes part, you know, bombs onto part of the um, of the uh, virus or microbe. And so these these only have the variable part that matches. And they're much smaller, and so a lot more can be fit into a, a dose. And um, and um, the 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 uh, bad news. It's not a bad news, but. They actually come from camelids, like camels and llamas. And because llamas are smaller, they're experimenting with llamas, and and it's an, it's another approach. And once you once you've uh, found an effective one, then then you um, you know, make you would make make these antibodies the same way, monoclonal antibodies, the same way uh, to attack particular disease. Yeah, and, thank you for uh, sharing that. That's really interesting. If yeah, you so find the article or the podcast link or something, that's I for will. sure interesting for people to read up so uh, or listen to. So have Okay, I'll look for it. Yeah, I definitely have it. And then there's actually an earlier one too. So I'll if I can find it in a um, immune system specific podcast. Thanks for letting me talk. Oh yeah, for sure. And I'll hi, put it in the chat. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much, Les. And hi, Dr. Heidi, and hi, Kyle. Uh, I know Kyle, you shared a link. I'm sorry, I didn't have a chance yet to deeply look into it. But would you like to share? I also have not done a deep look into it. I did have ChatGPT do a review. My brother sent it to me today, uh, but I thought it was interesting. Um, and uh, I'm currently uh, exploring it, but 
it's it's pretty recent and it's interesting it's a quantum deep hedging is what they refer to it as but it's using qubits to <clears throat> basically train uh i think it's kind of like neuro, it's not, it sounds like almost like neuromorphic computing but just using qubits as the as the transformer layer and so like it's like an orthogonal layer um so i thought that was pretty interesting Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I agree. It sounds really interesting, but I didn't, you know, have time to read up on it to like, because it's also very out of my field to um, to comment on it too much. But um, it's really interesting. So we have it in the chat for everyone. If you would like to read about it, I think it's really worth the read and spend the time on it. And um, yeah, if people are interested to take a deeper dive, we can try to invite the scientists to come here. So yeah, reach out to me if, and then I'll try it. I mean, I can't promise anything, but um, we can always try, right? So um, yeah, perfect. Did, Dr. Heidi, did you want to say something, share something uh, before we... I. Uh, before we go into next links. Okay, great. Then I have a bunch of links always that I um, share throughout the week on Twitter. So, um, but, um, and then we share them here. And as I said, this is kind of an interactive room. So feel free to join the discussion and also share something you would like to um yeah to talk about today so um we i have links that span uh for in you know from biology uh evolution reproduction to nuclear power ships so um i'll share the first one which I thought was really interesting uh, from uh, basic biology reproduction type of um, aspect. So um, there's the link should be uh, visible for everyone. Um, so this uh, scientists have discovered real life chimeras. Um, so this I think was really interesting. So uh, they found this in the end that exhibits a unique characteristic of possessing two distant genomes, each contained within separate cell clusters. And, you know, usually we think that it's kind of impossible to have one organism having uh, two sets kind of, of uh, cells that have different genomes. We kind of would think that the immune system would weed it out and recognize it and that it wouldn't be viable. But apparently there are a few specific cases where that is not true, which if we can figure out what the system is and how the immune system of that organism copes with it, if we find kind of the key, I'm maybe going way ahead of myself, but you know, since I worked for um, 
a while in um, stem cell research and how to generate um, artificial 3D printed organs for people and the ideal situation was to find a way to make them off the shelf so um, so that they are not you know grown out of the patient that acutely needs right now an organ but pre-produce them um, and have them ready to go from any you know donor human um, this would be amazing if we could figure that out how, how these organisms survive that and live with two separate genome systems uh, then we could maybe find the key to have that and then we could have cheap organs for everyone that needs uh, a spare one um, you know without um, any issues and affordable so it would be amazing so I think this is why this uh, study is really interesting I don't think they were thinking of that but um, hopefully somebody else that is still in the field will pick this up and um, and use this knowledge. So the results of previous genetic analysis of the yellow crazy end have shown that the males of this species have two copies of each chromosome. This was highly unexpected as males usually develop from unfertilized eggs and ants, bees and wasps and thus should only have one maternal copy of each chromosome. Um, the results were quite extraordinary. It had been assumed to date that the males of the yellow crazy ant carried the same two sets of chromosomes in all cells of their body. However, the team was able to demonstrate that this premise was anything but correct. We discovered that the male ants have maternal and paternal genomes in different cells of their body and are thus chimeras. To put it in another way, all males have two genomes, but each of their each cell of their bodies contains only one of the other of the two genomes. So, you know, for the male, the female genome is basically an alien <laughs> organism cell, basically. So, um, this is quite amazing that this works and this wasn't discovered before. So, normally in the multicellular life form, be this a human and dog or a bat, all cells contain the same identical genetic material. This team concludes that male yellow crazy ants are chimeras. They develop from fertilized eggs in which the two paternal gametes do not actually fuse. Instead, the maternal and paternal nuclei divide separately within the same egg, meaning that the resultant adult male have both paternal DNA sequences but in different body cells. When the gametes fuse, either queen or worker develops from the egg depending on its genetic information carried by the sperm. It is yet unknown what mechanisms determine whether fusion of the paternal gametes take place or not. So, um, yeah, this is really interesting and... Um, yeah, I think it would be, you know, it will be important to continue study these organisms and how they work around to, um, to survive as chimeras and hopefully it will help us in the future. So. I don't know, somebody unmute it, please go ahead. Yeah, it's me, Katerina, but uh, because I'm out, I'm not sure if you hear too much noise in the background. Because No, um, it's good. It's all it's, good. Uh, oh, excellent. I'll try to move. Uh, 
It's um, yeah, it's a great honor that I was actually in Schwartz Lab in Adelaide, which is um, we um, been actually researching social um, entomology and social insects. This is back ten years ago when I was actually finishing up my PhD on phylogenetics. What I'm trying to say here that there is a new um, uh, era of abundance in science in terms of genetics and genes and um, we have a place which is called a gene bank where we submit the new genes we find from our analysis and DNA analysis and by the rabid uh, and the processors and the technology uh, in the last few months and the speed of the tech companies to offer processors which is doing a huge sort of um, power for analysis um, we used to submit like um, one gene every three four months now daily they have submissions of 1000 genes so I'm trying to say something like this research can be happen in a blink of an eye right now especially in the area of social entomology and um, what strike me hard when Katerina saying it's uh, the female genes it looks like uh, and aliens genes for the male yes and uh, it's interesting I've been studying the last last week um, the queen ant uh, there are electromagnetic waves and the energy behind their DNA that's why when the queen dying they sort of don't know how to store the food and how to do it even if she is not physically in the same space with them they got this electromagnetic energy of the DNA, which is mind-blowing. And those discoveries, we didn't find out about them until we have this massive era of high-tech happening in the last few months. And I want to reference Katerina a few weeks ago. She has been saying, um, after the what AI been doing, it will keep us busy for the next 10 years just to discover and answer questions which has been puzzling scientists for long 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 years so um, in terms of DNA uh, the high-tech happening right now causing a revolution and you will start to find lots and res of research happening not only in entomology entomology is a science of insects it's in every single um, branch in science dealing with uh, analysis and the high-tech so thank you Katerina for um, I know that maybe the discussion is not going this way but I thought I will let the people know that just observe what's happening in science in the coming few months because we are in the time of revolution thank you yeah thank you it's interesting you saying that because I have another article with um, with neurons um, how they create basically a meta neuron cell um, with, for to study Alzheimer's disease, which is really interesting because um, nowadays for brain cells, <clears throat> especially for human brain cells, uh, we usually do a lot of single cell analysis. Um, so that we know for sure, you know, this neuron did this, during our studies like electrophysiology or whatever it was and then we take the cell and then we sequence it and also look for RNA levels um, 
to be very you know exact in our findings and this is very important and it became viable with more sensitivity however for each cell we still miss a lot because especially in rna levels so not in the dna sequencing but in how the neurons use the dna in this situation let's say it's a cell um, in the beginning of alzheimer's disease for example when it starts um, we want to know what changes are happening in the use of the genome uh, that kind of leads then to this disease or make it worse and so on and um, there's a lot we miss so this um, paper that just came out discusses um, collaborations that develop this meta cell so what people do is then uh, try to match up from different labs in you know from different experiments and so on the cells together um, and analyze them together as a one big meta cell so you know they have to be of course precise that you know let's say it's the beginning stage of Alzheimer's it's exactly this type of neuron and and so on this uh, condition of the experiment uh, and if you have this very precise collaboration then you can put these let's say you get to 50 cells together and then do the RNA sequencing and look at the gene expression for this exact situation of this exact neuron and this is what they developed this meta cell collaboration and it's been getting some really great results so um yeah it's really promising for especially for neurodegenerative disease um and to kind of find ways how to intervene uh to kind of prevent you know the ongoing disease so i think yeah this is a really great progress and was also just published in cell reports methods so it's um the cell journal for methods development and um yeah this kind of fits to you know in the whole story that we are making really great advances and yeah i hope these methods will help a lot of people in the future Katerina, I love it, especially there is uh, an article came out in the Neuroscience magazine this week uh, speaking about it's all in the synapses. So it's not like on a cellular level, even the reaction between the cells itself and what's happening on a chemical level and on um, electromagnetic level again uh, and the synapses and people know the synapses dynamic. It's really complicated so uh, thank you so much for uh, another learning we we hear about today from you I, I have a question for you actually i'm not sure if it's related to what we're talking about but it's been bustling me for weeks you know when they've been uh, talking about botox and how it enhances um, um, treating the cancer and uh, treating alzheimer and dementia and the great promises behind botox now they reversing their talks and saying that it's actually blocking those synapses and it's actually carcinogenic and it will start to cause deterioration in the brain um, functions so i thought you are the expert and let's ask you with um, 
from experience, what do you think? Which, which school you favor the most? Thank you. Did you say Botox or? Yes, I said Botox, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I'm really not the Alzheimer's expert um, at all, but um, I, I would assume that it's, uh, yeah, I would be careful in assuming that it, it is helpful um, for various reasons, but um, I would have to look into the clinical studies data sets and so on, which which I didn't. So uh, I, I I would have to look into it before making a really you know sound before just saying something that I just think and it's not really database. But um, yeah, then if that would be true, we would have we would have no rich female with Alzheimer's, <laughs> Botox would help so much, but that's totally oversimplified. But Les, you, you unmuted, please go ahead. I was just gonna copy, uh, comment on the uh, story before about the uh, chimera, chimeras. Um, they're actually human, they don't call them chimeras, but they call them mosaics. And there are two reasons Two places where that is clinically important. Um, one is, um, well, basically, uh, I actually have a friend whose whose um, son was had a um, metabolic disease that uh, you know killed a lot of his cells, and it was male linked. So they looked to the grandfathers to see. Uh, to see if that was um, the grandfather, uh, to see if if he had it, you know, and he was totally healthy, but to see if his cells had had that, and uh, they they found it didn't, but they decided mostly by uh, elimination that the grandfather might have been a mosaic, which means that. Perhaps um, he had some through either mutation or a a uh, twin that did not survive to birth, but the cells became part of um, combined. Um, um, when I say combined, I meant part of his cells came from this twin, very few, and then some of them came from, um, you know, his his embryo or whatever, and they decide and the twins the twins um, had this defect, and that was that ended up in in um, uh, some gamete cell and got passed on, and the other kind of uh, of mosaic is is where of course you have a mutated cell and that has a defect and uh, that gets put in a gamete and passed on or the person that has the problem ends up uh, with liver cells from this 
um, from a mutation, of course, that, you know, spontaneous mutation. And so he's not producing the protein he needs. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. You know, there is also um, small that it can happen that um, mothers, uh, also human mothers that gave birth, um, that sometimes they keep a few cells, like a few um, stem cells from their uh, children, from their offspring. And it, it has been discussed a lot since people found that if it has good effect or in the long-term bad effect, such as, you know, um, chronic inflammation and so on. And, and apparently it depends on, um, on the cells of the kids, like, um, you know, how different they basically are if it has like benefits or uh, or bad effects long term um it's really interesting it's it's apparently it happens uh, that just a few cells um kind of <clears throat> escape um and 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 stay in the mothers um but um, yeah that's that's an interesting case study also uh, that you mentioned um so, yeah, it's, but, you know, in general, if you give like a small, a larger amount of cells, you know, especially a whole organ from another person, you know, with a different genome implanted into, from one human to another, you know, it, you know, it, the person basically dies if you don't give like immune suppressors, even if it has a very similar genetic profile and uh, immune profile. Um, and yeah, people are trying to address that in different ways. You know, I don't know if you read about the pig heart that was transplanted. It's like pigs that are basically humanized um in a lab uh, to grow organs for people um it the, the heart in the end was rejected after a bunch of months from the person but yeah people are constantly study ways to kind of get around that because the current way of doing things we lose a lot of organs because you know we have organ donors, but then there's currently no match and no match in the area that it's realistic to transport it, that it will survive. Um, so we, we, we waste a lot and then we don't have enough matches at the stage when people are sick and really need them urgently. So it's a huge problem and um, yeah, I hope we'll, we'll it's a very complicated one. There are a lot of different factors, you know, immune signaling systems and so on that uh, play a role. But there have been a small steps made um, that hopefully will one day solve this. So, And regarding the Botox, um, I read a little bit how Botox basically hijacks 
the pathways the same way the rabies virus um, pathway travels. And we had a really interesting speaker here last year. I think it was beginning of last year, maybe in March or so. I have to look up the recording. I think he had the most striking results regarding Alzheimer's. You know, uh, the highest percentage in Alzheimer's population is female. And he gave, basically, he blocked in female mice um, that are... <clears throat> that are kind of genetically modified to imitate the human Alzheimer's disorder. And um, he blocked the female uh, hormone um, and he could basically prevent and also reverse Alzheimer's. And he's currently studying uh, now, he's moving to clinical studies to basically block um, in human females, the hormone FSH, and um, and let's hope it works because apparently the female hormone is the biggest contributing factor for um, you know dementia, Alzheimer's, and so on. So yeah, okay. Thank you, Katerina. It's always. Uh... <laughs> Um, controversial talking about Botox and talking about the big business um, things but uh, we as a scientist we know sometimes it's we, we, we have to um, speak about uh, things which is not popular uh, be, be because we know it causes harm unfortunately but um, I know it's, it's maybe the research in this area it's very limited due to uh, the big business behind Botox but um, I'm a strong believer that it's uh, it's really causing harm on a cellular level, and this is from molecular biologists and the very close labs I'm working in and seeing things myself on rats and mice, um, which DNA. Uh, this is back to the point of the mice and rat I shared actually on um, in the chat uh, an articles. It's for the last twenty twenty something years. Um, they're speaking about pancreatic cells and um, insulin um, in rats and mice and how it's uh, the compatibility between the pancreatic cells and mice with humans. So, uh, again, there are some promising uh, research, but due to the controversial issues of business and business ideas and big um, what to say? Uh, medical companies behind it. It's it's a sometimes it's a stops, but uh, it's enough that scientists and practitioners they know what's wrong and what's right to do it on their um, uh, real life and immediate family. At least we advise the close people to us with the truth. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. It's you know since it's such, especially in the U.S. since it's such a huge money machine on the un on one hand it uh, it starts off a lot of you know innovation because there's money to be made but on the other hand you know there's money also to be made with not so good data so um yeah it's always you know you always have to be careful in the beginning and um and and see what you know, actually works. It's it's not always easy because also the data is not always easy. I mean, I think sometimes there's not even 
a bad intention. It's just clinicians then, you know, are not necessarily good in statistics and looking through data sets and then the people that do it for them, they sometimes don't understand the full theory and uh, biology and chemistry behind it, you know. So sometimes I don't think even it's it's malintention. It's just, um, yeah, it's difficult data, especially human data is difficult to analyze and do really good experiments with good controls. It's not that easy. So, um, I mean, we, we have a lot of developments recently and I think, you know, we keep moving forward, but um, it won't be always a straight path forward. There will be always hurdles and, and turns. So, but um, yeah, thank you for pointing that out though. I have another neuroscience related um, article to share that I thought was really interesting. And um, and then we can move on maybe to uh, climate and, and engineering and so on. So I thought this was really interesting. It's just very anecdotal. I tell you why I thought this was really interesting. You know, my, my brother, he's a neurosurgeon and over the last years he like aged a lot. Uh, he has a lot of white hair and he's eight years younger than me. And, um, and he kept saying that he thinks and colleagues of him, you know, say uh, the more death you see, the more you age and get gray hair. Um, and then this study just came out. I always thought, I don't know, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't take any of that too serious. But now this study came out and, you know, we use fruit flies for um, as a as a model animal for a lot of stuff. Um, also neuroscience related, like neuroscience and behavior. Um, and then we link it to, you know, different changes in the genome. And then we look at the behavior and so on. And uh, yeah, so uh, researchers led by Christy Grendren at the University of Michigan had found the link between death perception and um, and uh, aging in flies. A new study published June 13, Open Access PLOS Biology shows, shows that the specific group of brain cells in the fly called R2 and R4 neurons are activated when flies encounter other dead flies. And that this increased activity leads to more rapid aging. Aging is a complex process that can affect it, be affected by both genetics and the environment. While we know that perceptual experiences can affect aging, how this happens is still mostly a mystery. One example is the effect of death perception fruit flies. Previously, the group at the University of Michigan reported that when fruit flies see other dead fruit flies, they experience advanced aging, and this effect depends on a type of serotonin receptor. In their new follow-up study, the researchers report the details of this process. A series of experiments in fruit flies showed that a specific group of neurons is responsible for fluorescent tagging, showed that exposure to dead Flies led to increased activity in a region of the fly brain called the 
an ellipsoid body. Silencing different ring neurons in this region revealed that two types of ring neurons, R2 and R4, are necessary for the effect. And other tests showed that the key is the serotonin receptor 5-HT2A located on these neurons. Finally, the researchers showed that when these neurons were artificially activated, fruit fly lifespans decreased, even when flies did not actually experience any death perception. Understanding how neural circuits like this regulate aging could eventually lead to targeted drug therapies in humans that slow the um, aging process. Uh, Co-author said, Scott Pletcher, we identified specific neurons and evolutionary conserved molecules in the fly brain that help tune rates of aging in response to environmental conditions and experiences. So yeah, I thought this was really interesting and I hope it will lead to, you know, a lot of... Um, new advancements in how to treat, you know, aging that is way too rapid as it should be, like then it should be due to stress and other environmental factors. Okay, if there's no comment on that, uh, I'll move on to another one. I thought this was really interesting. Um, so we can move into space. <laughs> Let's move from the brain to space to cover. It is interesting, but I don't want to speak too much because I feel that I'm commenting on every news. So it's, it's, it's beautiful, beautiful and I'm actually digesting it. And it's interesting too. And I will be actually looking forward for uh, similar research to support it because, again, it's uh, you're picking for us the ones which is um, not popular. So this is how I feel. Yeah, thank you. Feel free to comment all the time. Um, hi, Eric. Hi, Espanya. How are you? Uh, please go ahead. Yeah, I, I just think that that was a fascinating uh avenue of study it it sort of makes so much common it's like you know we waited till the year 2023 to sort of science to prove something that i think a lot of people sort of just think intuitively it's one of those sort of reduct like uh things that probably like your great grandparents knew and you know tribes person knows but the modern people don't know but yeah it's fascinating uh mechanism and research thanks yeah i agree it, it was a fascinating piece of research and it makes it's common sense that like eric pointed out you know our grandparents knew that stress was a killer right that so yeah absolutely uh enjoying it very much thank you yeah, thank you. Oh, please go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say it's an interesting observation since the AI um, uh, <laughs> happening in the last few months, I feel that we became a science communicators better. It's uh, our science communication skills. It's uh, became more clear. And I'm talking about the scientists now, the way they write their papers, it's in um, everyone can understand. There been a big gap between the audience and the scientists in terms of translating their science and having 
those real elements of science communication skills. And we start to see um, something like this room, Katerina, someone communicating science in a simple way. And they try to dilute all the um, heavy um, jargon of, of science and terminology and they create a new narrative. So this is how I feel. Even the, the way the papers are written nowadays, it's uh, reaching the people's hearts and minds. And this is um, the novelty of uh, AI. People are became social engineers, finding the right prompts, finding the right words which expressing the science is. And this is, um, we reach more and more people. So it's a, the communication shift as well. It's a paradigm shift in the science communication happening right now. Not only the content, how we deliver it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that because there was an article today also that was mentioned in tech news. I don't know who shared it, maybe Victoria or so, uh, that uh, doctors are now using AIs like ChatGPT to communicate um, better in simpler ways with their patients and uh, using... Uh, AI to so help them with that um, and I think if you go through let's say 10 years along of training and you in your training you mostly talk with your colleagues and supervisors and so on you kind of stuck in that world um, then it it takes real training and it's not easy to express all these things um, in simple terms because you actually have to thoroughly understand each jargon you use, like each word you use, which comes with a whole story behind. And you kind of have to thoroughly understand it to uh, to explain it in simple words. And um, I, I don't think, you know, everyone can do that really easily. I think it takes some training and I understand that uh, science is doing a better job, but I think academia until now, and it still is, was very snobbish. No? They kind of felt uh, to be able to understand this, you should have studied this for like 10 years, or you're not one of the chosen ones that is supposed to understand it. And I think this mindset is also changing. Um, because it's publicly funded work, so everyone should understand what scientists are working on. That's for sure what I think. And I think that mindset is changing because they kind of have to. And uh, I think it's good. So yeah, thank you for pointing that out. And um, yeah, it's also interesting how science now is catching up with, you know, kind of old knowledge, what people passed on the 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 interesting detail i guess science can add on is is to point out what the exact mechanism is and then maybe hopefully in the future kind of uh, treat different disorders that are due to those stress factors and then um, try to develop treatments for it because we know how exactly it works in the body and then hopefully we cannot just know that this exists, but how and how we can treat it. So hopefully that comes out of it. Um, if not, we wasted a lot of our time.
And I hope that's not the case. Let's be positive. So, uh, yeah, I shared this link on top. Uh, the world's first base factory has successfully been deployed. It's by the company Varda Space Industries. And what they want to do is um, um, kind of a space factory. The W Series 1 satellite is housed within one of the Rocket Lab's um, photon platforms, a satellite solution that NASA has also can contracted for two Mars missions next year. And um, the company was founded by uh, ex-SpaceX avionics engineer Will Bruy and Dillian Asparuf or, of Peter Thiel's Founders Fund. And um, they want to enable the mass production of certain products from space uh, which will then enable um, largely um, increased accessibility to space. Um, and um, so, for example, they want to, um, 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 for example, grow protein crystals in space because since um, it's the microgravity and since this happens then in microgravity you get more easily uh, crystallized proteins um, that have more perfect structures than when you would produce them on earth and um, this um, formation process is usually adversely affected by gravity and there you basically have microgravity for free <laughs> well not completely for free you have to send out that that stuff um in space but um so um one example comes from research carried out by a pharmaceutical firm merck uh, aboard the international space station uh, the study found that more stable versions of um, the active ingredient pembrolizumab um, used in cancer drug Ktruda could be produced um, better in microgravity. Uh, so yeah, that's there. Uh, and for example, in space development of Ritonavir, a drug traditionally used to treat HIV, but more recently used in Paxlovid, an antiviral medication to treat COVID. And Varda has also separately signed an agreement with the US Air Force to perform hypersonic tests, the company test rig will travel at the speed of Mach 25 during this re-entry to Earth's atmosphere. And the company announced in March that it had won a $60 million contract from US Air Force uh, Stratfi to use its re-entry vehicle as hypersonic test bed. I thought it was kind of really interesting that yeah, I, I didn't know that there were drugs you could produce more easily in microgravity. And um, yeah, I don't know if anyone wants to comment on it. Feel free. Okay. And... Um, Oh, I have some. This is another yeah. one of those things where people have been talking about this for 50 years, right? Like, there's like every time they talk about space, they go making drugs in space. So we're getting to that time. It's amazing, you know, that like there's so much space industry happening now. It's all it's all happening. 
Fascinating. Amazing times. I would think they'd want to look at making common things up in space. If we're going to be sending people to Mars, um, if you need to produce something, then you would, you know, it takes forever if you go to Amazon.com and and uh, order it. They'll deliver it in 20, 2109, you know. So you need something local. Uh, perhaps you have some emergency, you need a part or something ongoing. So my guess is that would end up being more a practical need than the idea of uh, making something that, say, requires microgravity because the cost of of uh, going to space and making it and then bringing it back is substantial. Yeah, I agree. Uh, would probably only make sense if you couldn't really, you know, get the, the structures here if like without microgravity because yeah, generating that environment on Earth also takes energy. So yeah, I don't know what the the scaling cost is and the energy cost when it starts making sense to send it, you know, ingredients up and then bring them back down again. So, uh, yeah, I don't know, but I thought it was kind of interesting that it even is a model that gets funding. Because uh, I would think the same. It kind of uh, sounds really expensive and, and energy inefficient to, to produce things in, the, in space. But, yeah, let's see. I don't know. <laughs> Um, yeah, if anyone wants to still comment on the previous one, um, yeah, please go ahead. If not, we can move to onto the octopus because I earlier forgot to to mention this last neuroscience one. So, does anyone, Billy? Hi, did you want to comment on the space drug production, protein production one? Hello, thank you. Yeah, I'm reading it right now. I yeah, octopuses are so smart, right? Oh, okay, yeah, let's move on to the octopus then. Yeah, I agree. They are fascinating. They fascinate me. And um, this, you know, they're really smart. They have a completely different brain structure than we have. Um, I think most people know it, but this is really even cooler. They redesign their own brain when they get chilly. So, um, yeah, as I said, they are one of the smartest animals on the planet. Um, they have about the same amount of number neurons as dog, but dogs, but more than half of those cells are distributed across the slippery cephalopods, eight arms rather than contained in the central brain. So. It's kind of an alien intelligence, if you so will, <laughs> in a very <laughs> different type of, you know, environment with pressure and so on. Um, mm -hmm. Which is really interesting because I don't know if you heard about the Flor a scientist in Florida that uh, spent 100 days uh, 
in the ocean, like under, you know, under high amount of pressure, um, under sea. And yeah. It, it, the reason is he's researching how to kind of heal the brain of different trauma and, you know, different types of, you know, brain injuries and so on, how to get the brain mm -hmm. to basically heal itself. And apparently he has been using these pressure machines. Uh, apparently pressure can make your brain um, trigger some healing mechanisms. And, and I thought this was really interesting. And now he, he took himself as the lab rat and did that. And now they are looking into all the data, you know, how healthier maybe rejuvenated his brain is and so on. So we will see what comes out of that. He just came back up from undersea a few days ago, which I think will be really cool to learn about. So it's kind of interesting that it kind of has the opposite effect. Like spending in space a hundred days is really bad for you. Like all this aging mm -hmm. processes get accelerated. And if you go then deep underwater, the opposite happens. Maybe we should put us <laughs> in that as, uh, for a couple of months underwater after they <laughs> space. I don't know. <laughs> Get our DNA grown back out. Yeah, exactly. Everything <laughs> <laughs> would be fun. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So apparently, this octopus. This was published in Cell, June eighth. They have the ability to recode their neurons in response to temperature shifts. So their cells produce different proteins. Um, so. You know, like we adjust um, to the weather with clothing, octopus added dead RNA, which is genetic molecule that carries DNA's instructions to produce proteins. They are mm -hmm. the ones of the cells. And they, um, those brain edits help octopus adapt to heat or cold when the seasons change. And they do this in an extraordinary extent. RNA editing happens when an outside force activates certain enzymes inside the body cell that then make chemical changes to the RNA. Depending on the changes, the cells produce different forms of proteins because RNA is a transient molecule. Any changes made to the genetic information carries will not be permanent. A feature wow. that theory makes it a powerful tool for undergo acclimation to changing environment conditions. And they apparently use it quite effectively. Um, so um, in a very sophisticated way, um, that is all cephalopods other than Nautiluses can recode the majority of their neural proteins. Um, and they found um, first they collected a dozen wild California two-spot octopuses, a species whose genome has already been sequenced. And they acclimated the animal to tanks that held either warm or cold water. And several weeks later, the researchers examined around 60,000 previously identified sites in the animal's genomes. Uh, where enzymes added RNA, they found that about one-third of those sites has changed and that these changes happen quickly on the scale of hours to a few days. We expected to see here and there a few sites that had changed, but no, this was something very global. And almost all changes were cold-induced, the team found. So it was more changes 
in the cold environment than in the warmer environment. And the researchers confirmed that the isoforms created via the air edited RNA had altered uh, functions. Um, but we do not know yet how these thousands of changes or some of them promote adaptation. Understanding these changes in concert is left for future studies. So, yeah, I thought it made them even more fascinating and uh, was really interesting to read. Wow, that is all so fascinating. And then, yeah, the access to the food the octopus has had as it's been evolving. And I wonder if there isn't a super efficient protein source maybe available to him. So then his body has had to evolve all these complex protein processes because maybe how his mode is he can't catch as many fish from outside. So he has to be really efficient with how the protein is processed inside him. Wow, that's so fascinating. Yeah, I agree. And it's, you know, <clears throat> the food availability is a really interesting uh, point because, you know, the um, when they get offspring, uh, some, a lot of octopus, they stop eating until their offspring are big enough. And wow. can be for years. So there are octopus moms out there that didn't eat in like three years and still, you know, care for their offspring for a very long time. And people don't know how they survive that really. Um, so I would assume, you know, you're right that they kind of found a very effective way to change um, the cell system to kind of survive these type of situations for a prolonged time so it's really mm -hmm. fascinating how they can adapt wow but, so cool but actually uh yeah. at the end of those three years at most uh they do die but you're right uh they must change their metabolism in some way to to uh, survive at that long but they only make one big brood i think and that's why they're and then they die, which is another way to have a lot of grandchildren. Because <laughs> you can have a lot of babies in one batch. Yeah, I, uh, I saw some research a couple of months back where uh, it was a group of people that were proposing that maybe the octopus is not from this planet. So I, I've I've been blessed enough to go to uh, the Philippines and scuba dive a lot, and I've dove I've seen so many octopus and cuttlefish, um, flamboyant cuttlefish, m different types. One there's a, one a, something called a mimica octopus, a coconut octopus, a wonderpus. They're just insane, and when you actually see them, they're actually just so they're 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 incredible, and so. Um, how, and I read about them and I was, you know, I, I was in an aquarium club at UC, uh, not at UC, at the Academy of Sciences in San Francisco, where they had a bunch of, you know, they're very serious science and everything I read about octopus, uh, cephalopods just is amazing. And so they're, they're, they're such, uh, an alien life form with so completely different, 
from us. And it's a, crazy because they only live a couple of years, but they can gather such intelligence. Um, cuttlefish are really cool. I have some video of myself petting one. They, they come because cuttlefish are not really a octopus or afraid. So they hide and they go under rocks. You know, I, I was chasing a, a mimic octopus once, which is okay because they, they don't care. They're not like afraid, but he, he climbed, he, he went into a rock pile, lifted all the rocks up with his tentacles, dove head first in, pulled the rocks back over himself, stuck one eyeball up because they can shape, they can shape change too. That was so cool. And another time I have a, a video of myself, um, just a cuttlefish because cuttlefish, they can't, they, they're more like fish. They can't really hide under rocks. They just have to pretend they're not there. And they hypnotize shrimp and such. And they do this like, like hypnotoad. And then they, uh, they, so I, and I have myself like petting him. He, he sort of swims up. They, they call them sea puppies. They come right up to you because they're not really afraid. And they just sort of look at you, you know, and, and, you, and I was petting them. And so anyway, that's so, but, and it's amazing that the, I'm sure that they'll just, figure so many amazing because they've been here for so long such vast amounts of them in the oceans for so long just evolving so so yeah octopus cephalopods yeah that's really wonderful that you have this um you know these experiences with them and yeah i agree that it's completely fascinating how they are you know, very aware of so many situations and how smart they are and how different the structure is. Um, so, which reminds me a little bit of the mushroom room we had with the mushroom researcher about, you know, how he studies intelligence in these mushroom networks to which is again such a alien way of intelligence so different from us so it's really fascinating to study this and i think it kind of helps us humans to take us a little bit off the you know high high rank or number one we think and start being more empathetic with other forms of life and recognize, um, you know, and respect more other forms of life. So I think this kind of research just for that fact is very important, um, you know, for us to, to be aware of that. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, so um, if we want to move on, um, that uh, we, I have a bunch of more articles. I don't know how long we want to keep going on. I think this one is a really helpful one to know, maybe uh, if people know. Could I could I bring oh, one yeah. comment? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. And uh, talking about what you were saying, uh, you know, if you look at um, if if you look at all the animals, like a cockroach or something you're not seeing some ancient fossil you're seeing everything is really evolved you know over the millions of years we haven't evolved much except through uh, other species before us but um, um, 
and then you know you're involved to a particular often to a particular niche and uh you know octopuses uh basically they're they're yummy they're too delicious and they don't have uh you know anything protecting much of their most of their body so they have to depend on on being smart and uh you know they they uh, camouflage and that sort of thing which uh, and I saw a picture of them, uh, an octopus and a crab, and the octopus uh, easily uh, killed the crab, even though he's, you know, uh, got a very soft body and crabs are <laughs> crabby. <laughs> they're, you know, they're pincers, right? But he had a very good approach. He approached them from where they, the crab's eyes, the opposite side where the crab's eyes were and away from the pincers and use his sharp beak to kind of cut through things, etc. But uh, even dodos, you know, you think of a dodo, you think dodos were really dumb. No, they were adapted to an island where there were no predators. And that worked for a long, long time. But when when the uh, you know the uh, things change, you don't instantly evolve into something different. You're evolved to a particular uh, niche, right? Fortunately, people we have two kinds of uh, evolution. The other being what we're doing right here, which is cultural, and. Uh, Katerina can tell us a good idea and we can get a solution to some problem that is bugging us that we didn't know existed before. And animals, it takes a lot longer. Yeah, that's that's really an important point you made that um, different animals just evolved into a specific niche and um, you know, they specialize to um, a problem, you know, they needed to solve to kind of survive there, which is really true. And um, there was a time, I don't know if that's still true, but um, so that we see, for example, for neuroscience or other, you know, um, disease or research that we don't see animal models or different animals is kind of simple humans that didn't evolve yet as far as humans but that we see the different animals exactly that way that they evolved into having the specific features that they needed for wherever they were living and to kind of um you know take this into consideration when using different animal models for as for different research uh, which is really important um, to point that out so yeah thank you for for mentioning that and, and by the way I'll, uh, I recommend looking uh, spending some time looking at cuttlefish because I, I've come to think that they're just like insanely cool because they can't hide so they just use their intelligence 
to protect themselves. So they just have to outwit or use their sort of colors and changes just to think, you know, that they're just, they're, they're uh, you know, people just know about them because they eat them, but they're not, they're not as well understood as octopus or, or as cute in a, but they are cute. And so if you look into cuttlefish, spend some time diving into them and you'll be like, oh my God, what a, what a trip that creature is. Yeah, thank you. I'll I'll try to remember for next time. Maybe we can we can discuss next week a cuttlefish article. Maybe let me let me write that down and then or yeah, if you want to next week share maybe a cuttlefish article to discuss that because I don't know enough about them either. Okay. I'll see what I can do. Great. Thank you. And, um, yeah, this article here, it's, it goes in a very different direction, but I think it was maybe important to mention um, that, um, like, reusing in a different way this lung cancer pill has half the risk of death in, in, in a subset of cancer patients who has have specific genetic mutations and the pill is called ozimertinib um, and after surgery it greatly reduced the risk of lung cancer reoccurrence. Um, this pill was um, given to people um, with this particular type of genetic mutation who have undergone surgery and uh, according to much awaited clinical trial results it had um it had been you know good the results seem to be pretty good so um it has been used before to treat later stage uh, lung cancer and since the fda granted it an accelerated approval in 2015 and this was published in the new england journal of medicine um, and the new study offers evidence that the same drug can improve the outcomes for earlier stages of lung cancer, um, says Roy Herbs, deputy director of Yale Cancer Center and co-lead author of the paper. It's really taking personalized therapy from advanced metastatic disease and moving it all the way to the earliest stages of lung cancer treatment. Um, so the trial included 682 patients with the mutation called T790M and just under half of them took the ozumertinib once a day. That's took a placebo pill. All the participants had had a tumor surgically removed and their cancers were considered stage 1, 2 or 3. Some participants had also completed chemotherapy chemotherapy treatments. Each patient took the medicine for three years unless they had to discontinue it. And they were monitored for a median of five years. Um, after five years, 88% of patients on ozimertinib uh, remained alive compared with 78% of the control population, meaning that the drug um, about half the risk of death during the five-year period. So uh, it's pretty good news. I don't know how people do it. I couldn't uh, morally do this, you know, to people that 
just to have a study. I know we need to study, but, you know, people that took the placebo, 78% of them actually died. So I couldn't do it, but there are people that have to do this. So, but yeah, that's just a side note. So would, you wouldn't do it because you might get the placebo or you'd be worried about... No, like the, being the, the person, being I know sense. that if I would see the data for like six years and you start seeing all the placebo people start die or a lot of them start dying and the others do not, I couldn't hold my mouth because you get to know the people you know, after a while, they come to the clinic, they redo checkups, you get to know all these people, you're not supposed to know which is the placebo one, but I don't know, I, I know myself, I would say, you know, just take the real drug, I couldn't watch people dying, basically, uh, that's the thing, like, but I know we need these studies, but, you know, it's one thing where you give a placebo and somebody loses less weight or I don't know, you know, some minor, not minor, but other effects. But in this clinical trial, the placebo group, the people actually died. So I, I know I wouldn't be able to do it, but there have to be people that, that stick through this procedure. But isn't it the case that if the trial is done really well, you don't know who's actually the control or taking the drug? Yeah, yeah. The people that administer the drugs are not supposed to know. But there is somebody higher up that knows, right? I mean, they know. But somebody has to hold the key, basically. for. But you don't actually actively give up the stuff the, those people don't know yeah but i know i could i couldn't do it like i just know myself but i know that people have to do it you also have to then uh, change around the the amount of drug you give um at some point to find the the effective dose whereas it's the lethal dose and so on um but yeah it's all things we have to do but I don't know why I mentioned it. But while I was reading it, I was thinking, I I can't do this. So, in in some cases, this drug seems very very promising and a good drug for for what it, I mean, very successful trial. It's really good news. No, it's wonderful news. Just not for the seventy eight that died. The seventy eight percent that died and got the placebo for them. It doesn't matter, right? They just they died. I mean, who cares if you were the person that died? But I know we need the studies. I don't know why I mentioned it. It's just if you act actually doing it, these studies, it's very different. When we read these, we are very happy and, you know, it will help a lot of people in the future. But to actually be in this moral dilemma is kind of weird. So if we look at the study too, what they did is um, they know what the effect of the drug is when it's given in full dose and it's targeting um, basically cancer cells. Uh, to get a cell to divide, there's like a receptor 
and the receptor in some cancers, a lot of cancers, become um, becomes defective, and it's almost it's like it's always being told, telling itself to divide. Doesn't need a signal from the outside, and this thing is it ends the drug ends with IB, which means it's an inhib inhibitor, and it inhibits. Uh, uh, an enzyme that's needed to have this work. And uh, so it keeps the thing from dividing. And so your um, immune system, I guess, can catch up or the cells die, die off eventually. Uh, but, and uh, so it's for a specific population, which is to be, you know, cancer is like 200 different diseases. It's just uh, a category of disease. And uh, so they're looking at some subset of lung cancer patients. And then some people won't tolerate the drug, but this is very good news. Yeah, yeah, it is very good news. I'm glad they did it, but um, if we know the mechanisms, I don't know. If we know the mechanisms of the cell and what the drug does, do we really have to wait until from the placebo group people die? Couldn't we have seen the effect at, you know, let's say halfway through and then started those people also on the drug? Did we have to let them die to be sure that... <laughs> That it increases survival rate that significantly. I, I Am I the only one that thinks that this is morally not okay if you have a drug in your hand that could save them, but you don't just because you want a clear-cut study? I, I don't know why. I, I don't understand why. I mean, I do understand that to some extent, but... Is that morally okay if you have the cure of somebody, you know somebody is dying of it, and you don't do it to get through a FDA approval process? Should the process be that way? I don't know. I, I think I couldn't do it. Like, I, I don't want to have anything to do with it because I couldn't watch people die of something that I know I have the cure, like, or, you know, something in my hand that could prevent it. Uh, I don't know if that's okay. I don't think it is, but maybe it is. I don't know. I, I think it's something we should start thinking about because the more cell models we have in the lab to study things and the more um, AI models we have to predict the outcomes of things and the more accurate they get, why do we still need to wait until half of the group survives and the other one dies. Are we actively letting people die? And then why do we make a big deal about euthanasia if we do this? I, I don't understand. Because our advancement of models are becoming so good that I don't think it's morally okay anymore to let people go through this process and let people die from stuff. It kind of reminds me of, and it's a, you know, definitely it's for me, it's a, it's a question, but the, uh, 
the United States Department of Health has been was at least I think up until a couple of years ago. Yeah, 2019 uh, was the expiration from 1999 to 2019. The United States Department of Health had a patent uh, on a product or basically it's like the, the actual patent says cannabinoids as antioxidants and neuroprotectants. And then right in the abstract, it talks about uh, cannabinoids having the capacity to be, uh, uh, you know, aided in used in the treatment of neurodegenerative diseases. And yet cannabis is a schedule one substance. So how does that work out? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, yes, that's that's another issue also with, um, you know, um, LSD and, you know, the effects we see and psilocybin uh, effects that we see that are very beneficial for people with severe depression and so on, how beneficial they are, but they are still drugs that are not, you know, approved. And... I'm not saying that in the past we needed to have these studies that way, uh, designed that way, uh, because we didn't have enough data to, and we didn't have the tools in the lab to grow all these different types of disease model cells and have animal models that are different disease animal models. Um, and then see these effects in cells, in human cells in the lab, see the effects in, in animal models in the lab, and then have additionally, you know, uh, computer models of different disease states and simulate what could happen if you give this drug. You know, we, we use AI nowadays to design proteins, um, and to to come up with novel drugs um, based on all these data sets and those are just becoming better and better so i don't know it, it i kind of think we have to start updating this clinical trials too to not be i don't know cruel uh, people complain a lot when we are cruel to animals, which is completely right. But I think we also have to think about, we don't want to use too many animals without the need in the lab to study drugs and make them suffer. But we also have to think in the future that these type of clinical trials, how we do it should be updated too. Uh, because we induce suffering without maybe having the need because we can predict outcomes um, nowadays and in the future more and more, way more reliably than we could in the past. That's only why I think I, I couldn't do it, <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. So. Hi, Dr. Katrina. Hi, how are you? Good. Actually, it's my first time being on uh, on mic on Clubhouse. So, 
actually I would like to commend your efforts to spread the science. So uh, as a neuroscience, uh, can you hear me please? Yes, yes, we can hear you. Hi, welcome. Thank you for coming. As a neuroscience, I want to ask you a question because one of my uh, friends is suffering with OCD. So through your experience, is it possible for him to overcome it? Because I have written like 1,000 1, documents, I think, about this disease. So the outcome that I come with, it's like the ignore, ignorant of that uh, repetition. So the person is actually, he's my friend. So he's actually repeating, repeating things. I asked him, why did you repeat? He said that because when I'm doing the action, some ideas come in my brain then it forced me to to do it again so he said until my 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 brain is clean so that i can be uh, satisfied uh, before that i cannot because some ideas that come in, into his uh, head for example sexual uh, photos uh, bad things that he cannot take it morally so please can you help me please katarina so that i can help my friend Well, yeah, I, I was during my postdoc times and also a little bit after working on OCD uh, in mice and animal models, like what happens in the brain and, um, you know, and the different plasticity changes that um, that are in in the brains of, you know, of OCD. Um, disease models and um, there's a lot of there are different mechanisms involved and what I can just say that it's not just something your friend can tell himself to I want to control it and then it works it's really physiological changes uh, differences in the brain um, where you know in, in the disease of OCD, the arborization of neurons is different, uh, different levels of neurotransmitters, dopamine, and so on are different. So um, it's a real change of the brain that happens. And what drugs can help there, it's still it's, it's still very difficult to address, to focus just on OCD because most of the drugs that are out there right now um, um, target uh, receptors and neurotransmitters that are um, in the whole brain. So it always affects the whole brain, but ideally you just want to address the compulsion and not just um, change the whole physiology of the whole brain, right? So these very targeted drugs are still not available. Um, I researched on a few novel drugs that are epigenetic drugs, but they are not out there for human use yet. It's all still stages of, we see the effects in mice and so on, but uh, we, we didn't move on to, to human. Um, there are different studies that show that maybe 
you know, ketamine and um, also this um, other neuromodulator drugs that kind of change the plasticity of the cells might be helpful. So, um, but I'm not a medical doctor. I'm like a, a neuroscientist that looks at how things happen in the brain from a basic um, a science perspective. So I cannot give a rec I'm not a psychiatrist, so I cannot give direct um, advice for your friend. I also don't know your friend, but I would look into new uh, studies that use uh, magnetic. Um, so they, there's a way to elicit basically plasticity, changes in plasticity in the brain using uh, very powerful magnets if drugs don't use, uh, don't help your friend, and then like novel drug treatments, just a, just like ketamine and so on, if you can get um, into maybe a trial like that or a doctor that um, that could maybe look into prescribing him something novel like that, like use um, electric stimulation, magnetic, like big magnets that change plasticity or drugs that change plasticity in the brain. But I know it's a, it's a disorder that change that, yeah, it's just like that hinders people from getting their regular life uh, done. But it's, you know, it's a real disorder of the brain. And um, yeah, I hope we make advancements um, rather sooner than later that those novel drugs get into actual clinical use. So Dr. Katerina, what I understood from you is that you are saying his brain is completely changed because uh, he has been my friend for a long time and he's like my younger brother. So he used to be okay actually, but in the last five years he was suffering from this disease. So before he was okay, he was doing his things all right, everything's all right, hanging with us. Even now he's okay, but what he's suffering from is that he's doing, repeating, 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 repeating. I asked him, he said, while I, I, I'm doing the action, the bad idea comes to my mind so that I repeat it. So I cannot feel happy. Yeah. So, yeah, if we don't know, there's only a very a small percentage that it's actually genetic. Uh, the it's just less than five percent. It's genetic. Um, OCD can happen. Uh, we don't know exactly what. Sometimes can be a traumatic event. Um, but yeah, different. We don't know exactly why in in many many patients the onset of OCD happens. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a real change in the brain that happens and it's kind of, um, a vicious circle that the brain is stuck in and, uh, these, these drugs, these novel drugs, or also, you know, I mentioned earlier LSD and, and so on. These are, and this magnet, magnetic stimulation and stimulation of electricity, it kind of, you have to imagine the brain and these diseases also in depression and so on is kind of stuck in a very deep valley um, and 
it can't get out of this valley and what these drugs do they kind of flatten the surface again that the brain has the chance to move on and have again different patterns of behavior and thoughts again um so yeah if you um yeah so 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 be understanding and then if you can um help the doctor maybe point his doctor towards you know novel clinical trials like this maybe there is something in your area where he can get into uh, hopefully this will help is, is, it, time, is there a time where uh these these uh, ocd um ocd tends to um develop like around puberty or is is there is it clustered the emergent to cluster around a certain time of development. Yeah, there are different stages in development where it's more common and where slight, um, you know, where it's normal in some kids that uh, that they have like a slight OCD, a not very severe one, and they grow out of it, but. Um, yeah, and other people, they don't grow out of it and they it becomes more severe, but also, as I said, very traumatic um, events or a death of a family member. And some people can trigger it, you know, hoarding, for example, is also a form of OCD, um, which happens, you know, very often when there was a loss, like a major loss in a person's life. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of different types of OCD and we don't think nowadays that just because the symptoms are all kind of very similar that the underlying mechanism in the brain is exactly the same they are different types and different genetic backgrounds and um, yeah different types of treatments will help for different people that's why I don't know exactly the patient and what happened and what is going on so um yeah it's always best to like work together with the doctor but also look into newer research and then maybe find a way to to get a more novel treatment yes dr katrina and uh, he actually he has been to many hospitals and many doctors but it didn't work for him so as because of he he is my close friend so he was so religious so he told me he made a sin then he regretted like a long time like two months three months it wasn't uh, he told me that when i woke up i started regretting just the time he's sleeping he was okay so he has been in this situation for a, a while then after that the things started he started to forget that sin so after uh, gradually it started this uh, things starting to become like uh, repeating cleaning repeating stuff like that then he said that uh, he started uh, the, the bad idea because he is religious the bad idea of like sexual things photos bad photos started to come in, into his brain so this is the correlation between the, the, the why is this coming to his head for example if he was an atheist of course he wouldn't care of this because of he is religious so this uh, idea come to his brain 
So I think this is the correlation. And the second thing, the hospitals, he has been to many doctors. They actually, I live in Africa. I'm, uh, I live in Kenya, so he's in Nairobi, in Kenya. So all of them, like ten doctors, he started taking medicines. For example, uh, Zoloft and things like that. Then it didn't work for him. So now he quit actually taking medicines, and uh, he said that what what I can do. He went to uh, watching on documents like that, and actually I helped him. So most of the the doctors are saying that uh, ignorant, ignore these things, even if the bad idea come. For example, if you switch off your light before you go to bed, don't repeat it. Even if the bad idea come to your brain while you are uh, switching off the light, ignore it. So gradually you will be okay. But this man actually he cannot. So he he sometimes he stay with me at home. So I. Tell him, please, while I was sleeping, please, can you switch off the light? I see him switching off the light, uh, coming back, switching off, uh, off, on, off, on, off, on. Like, sometimes it took for him five minutes, seven minutes, then he he, he, he went to the bed. I feel that while I'm pretending that I, I fall in I fall in the sleep. So he is actually suffering. But uh, other things, like he to take care of himself and uh, things for him it's not like that worse but the idea of repeating things like switching off the light switching off the, the closing the door opening closing opening closing opening closing sometimes my neighbors even when he come to me surprised they ask me what's wrong with this man i tell me he's all right but he he has some of kind of stress and that so so that uh, they understand so could you please give me like tactics, tactics like that he can use without medicines because he has been to many hospitals and it didn't work for him. So could you please, through your experience as a neuroscience, like is a major and actually faculty neuroscience, and it relates these things are related together. So, so please, can you? Yeah, I don't think that I would be very you know, uh, untrustworthy if I could sell, tell you that I have a solution for this because, and, uh, you know, I can give very general advice, but it's not like I can tell you this will work or, um, because again, I don't know enough and I don't think the doctors also know they for sure didn't do brain scans or looked at exact the mechanisms that that you know kind of changed in his brain to induce this so i cannot know exactly what is wrong and i don't think many people could even you know with the best technology but as i explained um you know that the brain can get into a pattern that is kind of unhealthy and these vicious circles um, are kind of in the beginning rewarding. So let's say, you know, you said your friend was very religious and I don't know the full picture, so it, it can be completely wrong and does not medical advice. But um, it was kind of a reassurance. So um, these behaviors to avoid future um, punishment or something bad from happening are very common we all do it right we put the seatbelt on 
to not get if he gets into a car accident that nothing bad will happen or that the police won't stop us and take away our driver's license uh we you know we do our tax return we we do a lot of things we we check before we walk on the street if a car is coming we do a lot of behaviors that avoid future harm and most of us or a lot of us do this in a healthy way right and it's kind of rewarding uh, we do this because you know everything in our brain but also everything we do has either a reward or a punishment kind of and we looked on the street if a car is coming so we could stop and avoid future harm and then we walk and this process is a tiny reward in our brain every time we do this and that's why we keep doing this without our dopamine reward system and also fear and so on we wouldn't do anything there are studies where in animals these systems were blocked and um, animals would just start uh, stop eating doing anything for survival and just die at some point uh, we need these we need these systems to do anything so they are quite rewarding and uh, some people for example when they have an exam or some stressful situation they take something they think that brings them luck either they pray before or they bring a lucky t-shirt or a lucky sock you know when a soccer game is and we want a team to win we have some people have these rituals they do because they kind of you know it's kind of superstition and you believe that your team will win i don't know if you know these kind of things but you know a lot of people have this or you bring like a lucky penny or whatever to something a job interview or something like that and um, our brain makes this connection right um we got the job or nothing bad happened or our soccer team won or something uh, and this is rewarding and then we keep doing it and we keep doing it more and in most people this stays kind of in a way that doesn't harm our life um, we do this kind of in a healthy okay way and also praying and stuff like that but then some people for some reason while doing something like this there was a lot of stress going on for whatever reason and um, i actually did a study in uh, animal study where i combined these signals of something very stressful with a specific behavior and if you combine this in the right moment at the right strength in the brain these two pathways you can turn any behavior into OCD type of state. And I was able to downregulate um, in a very specific way, which you cannot do in a human brain with optogenetics. But if you do it in the right timing with the right amount of stress signal combined with any behavior at the right time, just a few seconds of that combination in a strong enough way can turn any thing any behavior in an ocd like behavior and um and if that happens uh if the stress then continues 
it's it's really almost impossible for itself the brain to get out of this so um, you know in theory as far as the studies that I did and animals showed that this can happen to anyone um, if it's just the perfect storm basically for it so um, so if a brain is stuck like that in this vicious circle which is kind of you have you the brain is digging itself a hole deeper and deeper by continuing doing this avoidant rituals and then nothing bad happens so the brain thinks okay this worked again and again so the this movement and this behaviors get repeated more and more and there's the brain always thinks there's a reward because nothing bad happens so it becomes more rewarding and more bad thoughts come up more stressful thoughts come up and then the brain gets rewarded again for doing something and then but nothing bad happens so this is a very vicious circle it's like digging itself a bigger and deeper and deeper hole which many times by itself won't get you know the brain can't dig itself out of um there are um as i said there are drugs and electrical pulses stimulation that kind of can flatten flatten the surface again a little bit to give the brain a chance to get out of this pattern um, and these are things that induce random synaptic plasticity so this visual circle made very strong connections in the brain that overpower all other connections and what these drugs do or this electrical pulses and so on do is to just make the brain have random connections again and this kind of gives the brain a chance to have different types of thoughts again to have different types of behaviors again so now for using no drugs at all and no you know nothing no other treatment at all uh, I don't know if it will help but I would just um, you know have a very healthy lifestyle like sleeping enough uh, doing exercise like there has been a recent study showed that exercise can have um, an even better effect than going to therapy and uh, learning new things like help the brain make new connections um, art you know have as many various inputs and outputs as possible so the brain gets a chance to kind of make new connections and make new types of, um, of thought patterns and so on. So have like a very diversified everyday life, like exercise, art, maybe learn a new language, something, things like that. And then sleep enough, like that is really important. And the least amount of stress so things like to distress you know mindful moments meditation and things like that but I cannot assure you that this will help because it can also have the effect that 
just switches to a new ritual, you know, doing meditation for 10 hours, doing exercise for 10 hours, because we have that also in OCD patients. They then start, you know, hiking all day or going exercise, you know, all day. So not let yourself do this. Have a very, have a plan of a day where you do maybe one hour exercise, one hour art, one hour learn a new language, one hour this. So the, so he doesn't get the chance to find a new pattern that he does too excessively, you know. Don't just say, okay, do exercise. Then he will do exercise until death, basically. it You know, it's not even a joke. This happens to people that they, they do so much exercise that their heart at some point stopped because they didn't even take time to eat and hydrate. So um, we have to be very careful with these type of advices. So I'm again, I'm not a medical doctor. I don't know him. So this is not medical advice. It's just very healthy lifestyles in general can shouldn't hurt if done in the right amount. <laughs> Doctor, your advice is huge, you know, because we are in uh, Africa, like, we lack of, like, uh, majors like that, like neuroscience. We don't have, even one time I did my best, I researched, then I went to, actually, it was online, so I find uh, someone who called himself, like, uh, you know, Doctor, Cognitive Behavior Therapy, someone who is a therapist, then... I talked to him, I said, he said that I'm the person who uh, can treat the person who is dealing with OCD. I become so happy. Then I went to his page, then I started to looking at his uh, and, and stories. He said that once a time uh, there was an old man, he was like in journey. Then he found an old man, he was uh, praying. So before praying, they like do, um, you know, Muslims like they do ablation. Ob ob it's a water that they wash their hands and face and you know and uh, legs uh, no the, the feet then before they pray. So he said he once he found a, a, an old man who is like 75 years old. He was doing this like for a long time. Then finally what he did it was a cold weather. It was so cold the weather. He did like there was a a place like a pool. He went inside the pool so that he wanted to make sure that he did the uh, uh, the the it's called ablation. So then he talked to him and uh, he told his story. Then he said, "Do that, ignore it. Then you can you can find uh, you, you you it will mitigate. Then it will it will perish. It will finish. It will it, it will go in bed. So I talked to him. I got his uh, number. I uh, Snapchat, I, I know it, it was uh, on WhatsApp. I uh, sent to him uh, messages. I told him, please, uh, my friend is suffering with this OCD. It's not exactly the way you said it, but uh, the, the old man, but it's like different, like he switched off. It's it's the same, actually. So he switched off the light, off, on, off, on. So he told me, uh, you just have three days for him if he ignore it for three days, for example, if he, before he go to bed, switch off the light one time, then go to bed. Even if the bad idea come to his mind, it's automatic, you know. So he said he must ignore it. Then he go to bed, then he sleep. He said just three days. 
after three days, he will be fired. <laughs> so I told my friend, I told him, I got for you that. Actually, my friend is like 100% he is normal. But these things make made him life bad, you know, make his life bad. So I told him, I got for you that. Uh, this is an experienced man. He said he has a, like a, a, a place for treating people with OCD. Even he has pages online. So I, I, I Snapchat, I, I chat him on WhatsApp and he's told me that. It actually, he sent to me, uh, it was, uh, I didn't chat him, it was a voice, voice record. Then he repeated. He said, just give him three days. It will be enough. Then I talked to my friend. Actually, it's now six months ago. I talked to him. He said that I did. Then it didn't work for me. So what I mean is that don't like. Uh, I understand your job is like requires these things, but your advice can be a huge, you know, because here we lack. Actually, in my series, the series I am actually we have just one uh, or two, I think, who who is uh, like specialized in this faculty. Even they are not PhD, I think they are just masters. So we are lack. We have lack of these uh, things. So and. Uh, the, the the I want to ask you, doctor, and I'm sorry because I took many times and I really appreciate it. You made my day, and so I want to ask you about the uh, the CP. Uh, it's called the cognitive behavior therapy. I read about it. It's, many people said that it worked for the people who is dealing with OCD. So I want to ask you, please, can can it work for my friend? Um. For some people it works, for others it doesn't. And my uh, general advice is, you know, you for sure should try it. Um, but if it doesn't work, you shouldn't get desperate. That's always the risk, right? That when patients um, try a treatment type and then they start getting desperate and very depressed on top. Um, so it just... You know, it to not have that, that he shouldn't get this effect of getting very frustrated and depressed. So whatever, it can never harm to de-stress. And I think directly focusing on not thinking about something or trying not to do something will just increase the stress levels during those three days. And... I don't think it's beneficial to do that directly because it's very stressful and releases more stress hormones and so on in the brain, which could possibly make things worse. So an indirect way as far as I see, but I don't, again, I don't know your friend and I don't know the exact situation, anything, but in general, doing things that de-stress the brain, like the person can never should never hurt so spend some time in nature or by the ocean if it's possible go for a walk but not excessively again you know uh, focus on something new learning something new that he can focus on something so i think generally speaking to just try to learn something new and not stress about it and maybe just even accept it embrace it for a while but still move on with life you know uh, do breathing exercises 
learn something new, do some exercise, spend some time outside, get enough daylight, get enough sleep, hydration, have enough, you know, nutrition, good nutrition. All these things I don't think can hurt. Um, but directly giving the advice to directly try to not do and not think something. I don't know. Does anyone have the experience that it worked? Don't you think then more? Let's say you try to do a diet and you want to not think about food. Did ever anyone ever stop thinking about food and made that things easier? I don't know. For me, it never worked. So I don't know. But that's just what I think. And again, it's not medical advice. Now, as a subconscious mind, it doesn't differentiate between um, the self-talks if it's negative or positive. And it's a start to reprogram our brain towards what we say. So if we say to ourselves, I'm failing in this, I can't comprehend this, we actually... <laughs> uh, programming our brains to set up to this unfortunately and this is a lots of research recommending that the self-talk as well uh, Katrina and the neuroplasticity tips you just mentioned the strategies the sleep the food the water the nutrition it's all add up like building blocks to the neuroplasticity and rewiring our brain and set up the software to serve us so can't upload more than I've been doing when I'm off mic. Um, that be conscious what you say to yourself. Uh, so if you say I'm successful, it's not affirmation and it's not la la land. It's true. And there are lots of research. One of the most famous brain coaches in the world, um, Jim Quick, he's, he is saying if you want actually to reprogram your um, brain cells to do something new, Try to use the different hand, for example, when you brush your teeth every day, try to use um, the left hand instead of the right hand if you use your right hand. And this is by itself, by time, you uh, regenerate new cells in your brain and it will actually help in the neuroplasticity. So there are tips and hacks like this one and many, 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 many ones like what Katrina been mentioning um, can help us. and positive self-talk it does work it does work uh it, it's it's actually changing genes um and by by practice um, someone in the well-being arena for the last few years 10 years and they try to help people to go through hard times and disabilities uh helping them by neuroplasticity i'm saying it works and it works every day it may not show uh, it's like going to the gym uh, in it doesn't show an instant um, improvement, but it does work. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, and yeah, another detail that comes to my mind based on what you said, Dr. Heidi, is the, um, there's this BBC podcast, Discovery, and there was one about a treatment with hallucinogens um, for depression disorders and other disorder, mental health disorders and something a patient said that was really striking to me was he had this experience that he could feel being connected to everything else um, which really helped him 
then also three months after that uh, one-time treatment because since he felt connected with others he could also connect to himself and feel empathy with himself uh, you know we keep saying that also in meditation and so to be generous to yourself to love yourself and only then you can get better and he said you know he kept trying to think that you know in therapy sessions and so on but there in this experience he really felt that like empathy for himself and kind of um you know and then he could only get better so after many years of very severe depression he kind of could feel empathy for himself and then he started getting better so um i think it will always help that you know there are also meditations to visualize yourself to give yourself a hug and and tell yourself good things like as if you would tell a good friend i know it sounds all kind of very cheesy and stuff but there seems to be and from reports from patients that actually were helped um that they that this was an important step towards getting better so stressing less and you know respecting yourself having empathy with yourself and and make some lifestyle changes apparently can go a long way so yeah thank you dr hedy So, Dr. Katerina, you said learning new language and, 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 and having less stress. And like, this is tactics that, that, that my friend can use it to mitigate the, the, these bad ideas coming and attacking his brain without his uh, and permission. So, and and Dr. Heide, she said uh, neuroplasticity can help plasticity. So these three things. Yeah, Actually, yeah, and and uh, some Katrina being generous with us. She said the water, the sleep, the exercise, the meditation, the breathing, and all are proven by science. So I know that you list them in two minutes, Katrina, but please highlight them again because it may be a life changing for people. Thank you. I'm sorry for interruption because I love what you're saying. Oh yeah, thank you, Dr. Heidi. Yeah, yeah, okay, let me yeah. So, you know, th this is again knowledge that people had for a long time, but science has been recently, you know, showing with data and studies that these things can, can make a big difference over time. It's not like an overnight um, cure, but um, yeah, having enough sleep, finding ways to distress, having mindful moments, not everyone likes to sit down and meditate but for example going for a walk and noticing for example beautiful things or just noticing things these are mindful moments or maybe if you have to wait in line somewhere uh, or sit somewhere for a time where you you're kind of 
they have nothing else to do this happens you know you stand in line at the grocery store or wherever you have these moments just um, point out every single detail you see in front of yourself and maybe look at it in a different way in a different perspective maybe think about a story you could make with a, a everyday object and you could even try to write it down um these these kind of mindful moments and and doing these exercises this mindful exercise actually military people and and different you know, organizations like that use them now to um to to help people so having mindful moments go for a walk notice a lot of details maybe see beauty maybe pick up your phone and take pictures of a beautiful detail uh, so you're really conscious about the current moment and what you experience right now it's a different type of meditation then exercise has been shown to um, to help really a lot as much as you know in the other group there was a, per, a group do, going into therapy the other group that's the same amount of time exercise and exercise helped just as much if not even more and then also giving the brain a chance to focus on something new on new ideas so learn a new language some sort of new skill uh, some people like a language some people like to learn an instrument some people like to you know paint uh, learn how to paint whatever is easier accessible for you or um, is um, is more fun for you maybe learn how to dance like ballroom dancing uh, if it's even in a social context even better and um, yeah and then yeah be um, generous with yourself don't uh, think you're failing you're a failure you're doing bad things don't even label whatever disorder you have right now or thoughts he has try not to label them as something bad just don't label it just take it as a fact and don't stress about it don't label it and um, and get away from you know constantly thinking that you're doing something bad and so on just reteach yourself to be nice to yourself like you would be to a friend you would say yeah don't worry about it it's not so bad um you will get better and um, you know try to like you would to be encouraging to a good friend try, try to talk to yourself that way so um, yeah those are I think Dr. Heidi if I forgot something please add no you nailed it uh, Katrina it's uh, the people working in the neuroplasticity as Katrina say, and I'm echoing Katrina here um, those practices we used to have it from experience about science proving that it works and it works on our brain circuits and she listed many many things and the right way of doing everything even drinking water there is a mechanism of drinking water to enhance the metabolism every day and there are lots of papers and research behind it when to drink the right and what the right amount for us based on age based on our gender uh, uh, and uh, our needs as well and our health status so 
even drinking those eight cups of water, it's not like uh, one size fits all. It can be seven cups for some people. It can be 15 cups for some people. It depends on our um, uh, image, like body image and health image. But they said that eight cups of, of water, for example, it's enhancing the metabolism, enhancing the brain functions, the cells functions. And every single bit and detail uh, Katarina mentioning, there is lots of science behind it. It deserves a room by itself. Like a um, um, few years ago, Nobel Prize been achieved for uh, the biological hour and circadian rhythm and how actually uh, those hours of efficiency, people can sleep six hours and they feel full of energy when they wake up and people need eight or nine hours. Again, age um, and gender and many, many, many tips so there are lots of signs now proving every single aspect of those Katarina mentioning can create a great impact on two sciences. The science of the brain and the neuroplasticity we've been mentioning and genetics as well. Imagine you can change your blood cells, you can change your DNA, you can change your blueprint, fingerprint, the DNA by those practices. That's why I'm so enthusiastic while Katarina talking and I'm trying to list everything uh, in the chat. But remember, every time you learn something new and you challenge yourself in a new area of your life, you're adding a new cell. Now, what it symbol like that? You add a new cell or you're creating a new circuit in your brain, which is um, help you in longevity as well and reversing age. Your biological age will be reversed. And sorry, I spoke too much. Thank you, Katarina. It's really helpful, your ideas, uh, doctors. Uh, I actually thank you all. But Dr. Katerina, I want to make sure this idea of about uh, the three days. Like, if you uh, ignore these uh, bad ideas um, that attacking the person, um, it's gonna, like, uh, if you ignore it for three days, it's gonna over. Like, this is proven wrong. Right. So, sorry, Katrina, uh, let me interfere here. It's not ignoring because there is a science behind you not ignore the negative emotions. You try to contain it. And there are lots of scientists working on this area like Brené Brown and Dr. Suzanne Kane. So um, and from science, if you ignore it, you, you put yourself in harm. You actually um, going in a, in a something called the grief cycle, and again, psychologists and the psychotherapist and the, the psychiatrist, they recommend uh, working smartly with uh, emotions. It's like the Karate Kid movie, dancing with the snake. If if you see the Karate movie, it's a dancing with the snake, not avoiding the snake. I'm sorry for interrupting again, Katerina. I will stop now. <laughs> oh no, no, it was very important. Um... Yeah, I I um I totally agree with Dr. Heidi. I don't think that is a pathway that will lead to success. We just have to be pragmatic about it, right? We have to do things that actually work and not label if something is good or bad or uh, we just want people to um, be healthy and have a healthy life. So, um Trying to ignore or avoid something uh, is not making the person necessarily healthier. So um, yeah, I don't. I don't think this will be very successful. It would just make more pressure 
on the person usually and more stress during those three days would for sure after the three days would lead to having even more compulsion um so yeah i don't i don't think that this is a good path forward but um yeah I, again he should also see a doctor and get advice from his doctor and um i think we can move on now i think we we said all the advice we think uh, could be good advice uh, depending on the person yeah, the advice to follow the club because those discussions been happening for years and you can actually add your knowledge from every single room so it's it's not one room fits all it's the many rooms so if you didn't join the house yet join the science society and i promise you you will find lots of knowledge and wisdom sorry katrina this was marketing segment thank you doctors if i don't join here where i would be joining so <laughs> i have to join here <laughs> thank you doctors you actually helped me a lot yeah thank you and thank you dr heidi thank you so much that's really nice so it's getting really late where i am it's 11 18 pm but i wanted to um, mention uh, this um this study because i think it's really important work that i didn't want to miss this week and then the rest we can keep i think for um, next week so this was kind of an accidental discovery and not to dumps unexpected uh, discovery enhances drug potency. Um, so at the University of Notre Dame, researchers have discovered a low-cost method to enhance the effectiveness of drugs by loading them into thermally modified silica particles. These altered particles can retain chemicals and control their release rate. Uh, thus providing an avenue for improved drug delivery systems and a new understanding of biomineralization. And this was reported in the Journal of Nanoscale. Um, and the most important thing, it's a very low-cost way to enhance effectiveness of existing drugs. So if you take sand and heat and uh, heat it up to 500 degrees Celsius, nothing changes. Um, and who the the so Smith, who is also the director of Notre Dame's integrated imaging facility, was puzzled when Kanija Zai and Cassandra Schaefer, two doctoral students in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry who were working in this lab, discovered they had changed the structure of particles of silica, the main component of sand, at 80 degrees Celsius, a temperature similar to that of a cup of coffee. The discovery happened by accident. The particles were microscopically small, a thousandth the diameter of a human hair, but like their larger counterparts, marked silica gel and packages acted to new articles of clothing. These particles were porous and could retain a chemical. In this case, that chemical was a blue dye used to detect tumors in mice. The new dye, which had been developed in Smith's lab, was taking a long time to enter the narrow pores in the particles. So to make the molecules move more quickly, Schaefer and Zai warmed the mixture to just under boiling and left it overnight. When they returned the next day, they could see that the particles had turned blue. 
to confirm that the dye had fully infused, Chefan Zai enlisted the help of Tatiana Orlova and Maxim Tsukovsky, microscopy experts at the Notre Dame Integrated Imaging Facility. Olova and Zukovsky um, produced high-resolution electron microscopy images that showed that not only had the dye infused, the silica particles themselves had changed shape. The original particles were solitary spheres lightly dotted with pores like the skin of an orange. The new structure was spherical and uh, were composed of smaller dye-filled globules. They also had small openings here and there and that revealed a hollow core inside. The overall unit resembled a hollow raspberry. After the surprise of the initial discovery came a number of practical questions. What other chemicals could the researchers load into the similar raspberry-shaped particles? And most importantly, would those chemicals remain active after their surrounding structures had changed shape? Um, a fellow doctoral student, Jordan, Justine uh, took up those questions, repeating the process using a cancer drug. After a series of tests, he confirmed that the cancer drug loaded into the particles was still active and capable of killing cancer cells. The discovery offers a new tool for making existing drugs. What we have now is a way to go through the whole catalog catalog of amine-containing drugs and by following the simple step uh, we have discovered we can create new versions of existing drugs that could be more effective or have fewer un unwanted side effects. Smith and his study students have found that subtle changes in the loading procedures allow them to vary the thickness of the particles, offering a whole host of new options to fine-tune the particles to release drugs at different rates. The new particle's unique structure may also make it possible to load it with more than one ingredient. For example, a drug in the outer layer and the dye inside the raspberry to enhance researchers' abilities to observe the way drugs are released. In addition, the new particle's mistake also sheds light on a little understood biological phenomenon uh, known as biomineralization. We have found that, that amine-containing drugs have certain chemical attributes that speed up the degradation and reforming process in silica, and we think that it is similar to what goes on in nature. Um, the microorganisms that um, have the shells formed from um, silica have mechanisms that allow them to take sand and remodel it into their shells. And they clearly do it at relatively low temperature using organic molecules. What we have discovered is potentially some of the chemistry behind that process. So they will continue to innovate and they are gaining inspiration from both nature and discoveries in the lab. The broad lesson here is that we can discover in the lab how natural processes work and then we can use that knowledge and mimic those processes to design something completely new. Yeah, I thought this was a really great result because if we can use less drug and um, that is more targeted to exactly where we want to release the drug, uh, that's really 
amazing you know we have very severe side effects of cancer drugs um, as we all know um, and also you know other type of disorders where we want to ideally just treat where the diseases and not have the whole body affected of the drug so I think and additionally this is a very cheap way to do it now a lot of different labs worked on nano uh, delivery systems and so on but they are very expensive and um, take a lot of elaborate uh, steps to produce so if this is cheap and hopefully also scalable um, yeah this would be really wonderful for a lot of patients in the future Great, so yeah, thank you so much for this discussion, for everyone that came to share. Um, Eric will talk about poor cuttlefish hopefully next week. I hope I won't forget, if not, please remind me and share something. Kyle, we have to look at the paper you shared. And um, Les, thank you for sharing. Um, uh, the in the beginning, um, the the research um, that was COVID related and Dr. Heidi for adding so many interesting facts and pointing out really uh, important um, yeah details and uh, yeah I hope everyone enjoyed it. We'll have the room next week again and we'll have. Uh, a few um, more guest speaker rooms. We have next week Dr. Yelpi talking about um, climate change effects on the Arctic um, uh, rivers and how they are slowing down. And um, we'll have on June 27th Dr. Okre, it's a neuroscience room, how combining different colors, so multisensory learning binds neurons into a cross-modal memory engram, so kind of more effective learning uh, if we kind of have different sensory inputs going on. And yeah, we'll have more rooms, so if you like the science newsrooms or the speaker rooms, feel free to join, and I hope to hear you all again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, great. Um, thanks for this wonderful evening discussion and wherever you are. Uh, have a great uh, week and I'll close the room. And three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.